0: me to the book of Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. Well, in a few hours, uh, Ellie, Titus, and I are going to be headed to see my family down in Georgia and South Carolina. Uh, It's a journey that's going to take us about 14 hours if we do it all at once, which we're not. Um, But I have done that before, and it's a long trip. Uh, We are excited to see my grandparents, uncles, aunts, and cousins. We are not exactly excited about spending that much amount of time in the truck. Um, That being said, every time I make that trip, I am always impressed with how impossible that would have been not all that long ago. Uh, The interstate system didn't really become a thing until 1956 when it was passed under the leadership of President Eisenhower. There was a time when the best way to make a long trip like ours will be what would be by train trains were an efficient way to move a lot of people and a lot of cargo to their destination Uh, they still are although we usually prefer other means of transportation but not everyone got on a train legitimately when trains move through an area slowly it's not all that difficult to hop on one and so When a train would arrive at its destination, it would usually have its paying customers, but it would also have stowaways, riding the rails to get wherever they needed to get. Apparently, that's still a thing. Hopping a train is still a thing, because you can find field manuals online about how to live the hobo life. So I found that out this week. As we come to this passage this morning, Joshua 9, we're stepping back into the story of how God brought Israel into the Promised Land. The book of Joshua is like an unstoppable train of God's mercy, and the and His grace towards His people, chugging its way towards a final destination, a place of where where God's people inherit the rest that God has that God has secured for them, a place in the presence of God Himself, an inheritance that we know from the book of Hebrews is is a type or a foreshadowing of a better rest that God has secured through Jesus Christ for all who are united to him by faith. The events of Joshua 9 cause us to consider how we ourselves must strive to enter that rest. What we find as we study this passage is that the only way we can enter that salvation is through the gate of God's mercy. The only way we can enter that salvation is through the gate of God's mercy. So if you would please stand once again for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading the entire chapter of Joshua 9. This is the word of the Lord. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, And said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, the king of, the, of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day when we set out to come from you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey." So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made the covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephria, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jeriam. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants." cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, the theme of our passage this morning might surprise you. The Bible never shies away from telling us about the flaws of our biblical heroes. It's, it's hard to read these verses and not be totally dumbfounded as to how, after everything that went down, after Achan took devoted things for himself from the spoil of Jer- Jericho, that Israel could possibly make as big of a mistake like this, making a covenant of peace with one of the Canaanite groups they were supposed to destroy. And yet it happened. And God had a purpose for allowing that to occur. This passage is a classic example of how our shortcomings and our disobedience cannot derail God's good purposes. God truly does work all things for good to the praise of His glory and grace. So while this passage seems focused on telling us the story of Israel's error, the theme really is Is God's tender mercy. And the main idea of our text is a call to each of us to enter God's rest through the gate of divine mercy. So if you have a copy of the sermon notes, you'll know that the main idea of our text is that the only way to enter God's rest is through the gate of God's mercy. If we think about the promised land, the land of rest, as the destination of the book of Joshua, then we can think about God's mercy as the train bringing his people to that place. And with that kind of illustration in mind, in our passage we have three different kind of people who are distinguished by the way they respond to the train of God's mercy. So first we have the bandits, bandits. second we have the stowaways, and third we have the ticket holders so the bandits the stowaways and the ticket holders and our time this morning we're going to be looking at each one of these groups how they responded to God's mercy and what we are to learn from that so in our passage last week in in Joshua 8 we read about how Joshua and the people renewed their covenant commitment to God on Mount Ebal things are back on track And after they had obeyed Moses' command and worshiped God with thankfulness in Shechem, we see that they headed south to Gilgal to to continue taking possession of the land as the Lord had commanded. So this is an exciting time. Things are moving forward, but not everyone was excited about this news. In verses 1 and 2, we are told that when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan uh, in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, which includes the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, when they heard of this, we see that they gathered as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. If we think about, if we stick with thinking about God's purpose of bringing Israel into the Promised Land like a train, then these people are the bandits. Everybody loves a good train heist. These are the guys in the black hats trying to stop it. They, their whole purpose is trying to keep that train from arriving at its final destination. There's no secret about where it's going. The tracks have been laid. God's promise is to give Canaan to Israel, and it's being fulfilled. After the way that we see God fought for Israel at Jericho and Ai, the writing is on the wall for everyone to see. And yet, we see that there are still enemies to this purpose. Israel is going to receive the land. And yet, when these kings heard about everything that had happened at Jericho and Ai, they didn't look for ways to find peace and rescue. No, they prepared themselves for war. Like bandits trying to pull off a train heist, these kings and these peoples gathered as one to try to derail the train of God's mercy in an effort to keep Israel from reaching the destination and taking this land of rest. Now, if you remember back to Joshua's prayer uh, after Israel had been defeated the first time at Ai, it's curious to see that this situation looks like Joshua's worst fear. Joshua was afraid that the Canaanites would hear that Israel had been defeated by the little town of Ai, and that therefore they would come and they would surround them and they'd cut them off. In the aftermath of Israel's victory at Ai, we see that the Canaanite kings did just that. They came together as one in a coalition. But there's a noticeable, noticeable absence in this passage of fear here, and we're left asking why. And the answer is quite simply is that after Jericho and after Ai, Joshua and the people knew that as long as they kept close to the Lord, he would keep close to them and he would fight for them to give them victory and to establish them in the land. Now, the different people living in Canaan at this time weren't normally friendly with each other, but Israel posed a real threat to them all, and so they created this coalition. Our author tells us that their intention was to fight against Joshua and Israel, but by extension, we understand that they were effectively taking up arms against God himself. By gathering together to fight, they weren't just trying to defend themselves from an invading force. No, they were actively trying to derail God's covenant purposes. They were trying to block Israel from arriving at its destination to enjoy God's rest. The Canaanites weren't just Israel's enemies, they were also God's. Remember, God had endured their sin for 400 years, and now the time of his righteous judgment has come. The response of these kings and their people is very different from the way that we saw Rahab and and her family respond to the news of Israel's arrival. Instead of seeking mercy, these kings and, and their people chose to continue their assault against God by taking the fight directly to God's chosen people. They did not seek to escape God's justice, they rushed directly into it. It's almost as if in an effort to stop the train of God's mercy, these bandits have put themselves on the track. And far from stopping Israel from receiving God's covenant blessings, they've only ensured their own destruction. With the smoke of Jericho and Ai still rising from their ruins, it's, it's sort of puzzling to read that these kings thought they'd be able to stand against God and his people And yet we see that this is the attitude of almost everyone in Canaan. Uh, Joshua 11, verse 19, says that there was not one city that made peace with Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Joshua 11, verse 20, then explains that this was because the Lord had hardened their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the goal of these kings and these peoples was to block Israel from receiving the blessings of God's covenant promises. They did this, we see, out of the hardness of their own hearts. And all that they achieved was to secure their own judgment. Their hard hearts blocked them from receiving mercy. When the Bible says that a person Has a hard heart. It means that they have a mind and a heart that is deaf to God, dead to God, and at war with God. A hard heart is the result of sin. A hard heart has been blinded by sin so that its every desire is selfish and wicked. We are all born with hard hearts because we are all born enslaved to sin. We have passion for what God hates. A hard heart deserves to be punished because it does not acknowledge God or regard Him with the reverence that's due Him. Though the call to repent, turn, and be healed goes out to the world from the throne of God uh, who is merciful, calloused hearts will always refuse to hear His voice. One of the ways that God then judges hard hearts is to give them over to more hardness. When we hear that the Canaanites gathered themselves against Israel and that they were destroyed because God hardened their hearts, it isn't as if the Canaanites started out good and that God made them have hard hearts against their will. It means that God gave the Canaanites over to their sins, that rather than restraining sin's rule over them, he withdrew his hand, and so their sin consumed them. We see that this is the first step of God's judgment on sinners that he allows their sin to rule over them. And as sin rules in people, it bears further fruit of rebellion until it finally gives birth to death. In the case of the Canaanites, God gave them over to the hardness of their own hearts. That drove them to make war against God's people. Though they saw the power of God, the favor he had shown Israel, and the judgment that comes on all who oppose him, they chose instead, in spite of that, to gather themselves from battle for battle anyway, and so they met their own destruction. Uh, The Canaanites, with their hatred for God and their active opposition to him, are really representatives of all those who God gives over to to the sin that dwells in them. Romans 1, verse 18 says, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, suppressed the truth. That though what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The hardening that comes on the heart of a sinner, from, uh, comes from God in the sense that he no longer restrains them from being dominated by it, so that they spiral down further into sin until they are cons- consumed by it, and then they are judged for it. This is the end of everyone who opposes God and does not know Christ or submit to him as their king and their savior. The end for those who do not submit to King Jesus is punishment and destruction. The destruction that is reserved for them does not come because God will not hear cries for mercy that come from their lips. It comes because there are no cries for mercy and there are no signs of repentance, only further hatred. Because their hearts are callous towards God, deaf and blind to his call to repent and receive mercy... They would rather raise a sword against God and his people than receive the blessing of his mercy. Brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when you see wicked people rushing headlong into what God hates. We should lament that. Just as we should lament how these Canaanite kings and these Canaanite peoples rush so foolishly into the sword of God's judgment. Don't be surprised either when you see the wicked being raised up in a certain amount of prosperity here on this earth. God raised up wicked Pharaoh for a time so that he could show the world his power and exalt his name in all the earth through judgment. God also gave authority to Pilate because he had determined to bring redemption to his people through the crucifixion of his perfect son. But then he exalted his son over Pilate and showed that Pilate's authority was not his. The wicked may oppose the purposes of God's mercy, but in doing so they always put themselves in slippery places and they only secure their own destruction just as the Canaanites did as they gathered themselves from war against Israel. Instead, we must see these Canaanites and we ourselves must listen to the warning from Hebrews 3 verse 12 that says, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Canaanites are a warning. that they, they, We see the, their end. We see where wickedness ends. But we're also called to, to bind together as one people because there is a certain amount, part of us, that still finds sin attractive. And so we are called to fight for one another, and to be the body of Christ as one church. Now, the focus of our passage isn't so much the Canaanite kings and the peoples who were gathered together, as it is the Gibeonites who found mercy from God, even though they didn't go about it the right way. So, We want to label, this is our second point, uh, with the Gibeonites, we we find the Gibeonites really are the stowaways of this story. There's a big difference between how these people responded to the news of Jericho and Ai and the rest of the Canaanites. And our author makes a really big deal about that. In verse 3, we read that when the Gibeonites heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took, took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all of their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Now make a covenant with us. Now, this is a little strange. What is going on here? Well, the Hivites, who lived in the area of Gibeon, so we call them the Gibeonites, did not respond the way the rest of the Canaanites did to the fall of Jericho and Ai. We're told in Joshua chapter 10 verse 2 that the city of Gibeon was actually very great, that all of its men were accomplished warriors. But in the fall of Ai and the fall of Jericho, these men realized that they were very much powerless to stand against the Lord. They, they stand apart from the rest of the Canaanites then because they acknowledge that, the, that God is truly sovereign and that he was giving Canaan over to Israel. It's, this is almost like the story of Rahab, except instead of asking God for mercy to spare them, they instead went to try to find it by coming in through a side door. Rather than repentance, they resorted to craftiness. And so they're st- they tried to become stowaways on the train of God's mercy. Now, we really got to hand it to the Gibeonites here. Not only did they realize that they couldn't upset God's covenant purposes, they also realized that trying to oppose God was only going to get them destroyed. Furthermore, you got to admire the plan that they came up with. This, this is detailed. This really is cunning. The Gibeites knew that God had forbidden Israel to make covenants of peace with any of the cities in Canaan. Israel was allowed to make covenants of peace with people who lived outside of Canaan, but in Deuteronomy chapter 20 verses 16 through 18, Moses commanded Israel that in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save no you, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, which is the people group that the Gibeonites are part of, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. This was so, Moses says, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So that's the explanation that's why the Gibeonites made it look like they were from far away when Joshua and the leaders of Israel asked them where they were from they told them that they had traveled from a far-off place in verses 9 through 11 they claimed that they when they heard about what God did to Egypt and how he defeated the two Amorite kings who were on the eastern side of the Jordan River their elders and their people sent them to make a covenant of peace with Israel notice They don't say anything here about Jericho and Ai. That's still fresh news, and they don't want to give it away that they were sent for any other reason. To put the suspicions of the Israelite leaders at at ease, we see the Gibeonites invited them to check out their luggage, to see the evidence that they had traveled such a long distance. The bread, it was warm, now it's dry and crusty. The wineskins were new when they filled them, but now they had burst. Their clothes were filled with holes, their shoes were all worn out from all the walking that they had done to get there. It's everything you would expect to see with a person who has traveled as far as the Gibeonites say that they did. And the show was apparently convincing enough for the Israelite leaders to buy it. And so, without asking any counsel from the Lord, Joshua and the leaders made peace with them. It seems straightforward. It's all the evidence is there. So in verse 15, uh, we read that they made a covenant with the Gibeonites to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, three days later, the truth came out. Verse 16, they heard that they were their neighbors, and they lived among them. In the cities of Gibeon, Chephari, uh, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim, which were only a three-day journey from where the people had made the very covenant with them. When the Gibeonite deception had been discovered, Joshua summoned the Gibeonite leaders to himself and asked them why they had done what they had done. And they answered, verse 24, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. In verse 26, we read that Joshua didn't kill the Gibeonites. Instead, he delivered them out of the hand of the people so that they did not kill them. He made them instead servants, cutters of wood, drawers of water, both for the congregation of Israel, so for the, for the people, and also for the altar of the Lord. Now there are two things that we should notice about the Gibeonites, their deception, and how God dealt with them in his mercy in spite of the, of the lie that they told. First, we learn that you cannot enter the assembly of God's people through any means but his mercy. You cannot enter the assembly of God's people through any means but his mercy. When we look at the Gibeonite deception, we see people who are in desperate need they knew that the crosshairs of god's just wrath were on them and like a wild animal looking for an escape by any means necessary they tried to stow themselves away on the train of god's mercy they used their own cunning but their cunning we see got them cursed just as the cunning of the serpent got adam and eve cursed they tried to deal with god on their own terms They tried to get what God was offering without actually following God. But that's not the way to receive God's mercy. And when they were found out, they weren't executed, but they also didn't get to sit down at the table of fellowship with God. They were able to strike a deal with the Israelite leadership that spared their lives for a time, but they weren't actually joined to to God as full-fledged members of the covenant of peace, the way that we saw Rahab was. The Gibeonites sort of remind me of the woman who snuck up and touched Jesus' garment in the crowd and then tried to slink away unnoticed. And Jesus stops everyone and says, Someone touched me. He won't allow us to enjoy His mercy and not Him. God freely gives His mercy and grace because that's who He is. He gives it freely. He will not barter with us nor will he allow us to enjoy his blessings apart from a relationship with him. The Gibeonite covenant may have secured their exemption from being destroyed like the rest of the Canaanites, but it wasn't the sort of covenant that promises eternal life. I think that's why this passage leaves us so hungry. God has something more for those who come to him by faith and ask for his mercy that he freely gives. He does not offer serfdom to those he rescues from sin. He offers sonship. But that sonship can only be received through the means, through the gate that he is appointed. And that means is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Thieves, robbers, stowaways, they all hide because they do not belong and because they take what isn't theirs. If you want to receive mercy from God, you must enter through the narrow gate, through the door of Christ. That door is open. And Jesus calls each of us to come, enter, to trust Him, to become one with Him by faith, to find true rest, the sort of rest that the Gibeonites didn't get because they try to use their own cunning to get God's mercy rather than, than receiving it as the free gift that he offers. The second thing we need to see about the Gibeonite deception is that God did have mercy on the Gibeonites not because of their cunning but because of their faith. There's a change, a real change in the approach of the Gibeonites in verses 24 and 25. When Joshua confronts them about what they've done, they don't, lie again they come clean they confess and then they submit themselves to joshua they say whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us do it the gibeonite leaders feared god they believed that his word was true and they confessed his power their lies seemed to work initially but in the end they were found out the change comes in verse 26 when rather than continuing to oppose god they repented and they turned from their deception and we see that they were delivered now as i pointed out the terms of their covenant really are different than the covenant god made with israel they didn't receive peace and rest in the same way but god had a purpose for the gibeonites and that purpose has a surprising twist back in genesis 49 verses 5 through 7 Jacob cursed his sons, Levi and Simeon, because of the way they deceived Hamor and his son Shechem for the way Shechem had treated their sister Dinah. They agreed that Shechem could have Dinah as his wife if he and all the men of the city would circumcise themselves. And Shechem, delighted, was agreed. But while he and the men of the city were recovering, Levi and Simeon came and they killed them all. Now, David Schrock points out that in this their curse uh, was that they lost their inheritance, their portion in the land. Yet in time we saw that we see that the curse that fell on Levi became a blessing for the whole people, because God located Levi as priests at the very tabernacle of God. Something similar occurs with the people of Gibeon. Because of their deceit, we see that they are cursed. However, like the Levites, they became servants in God's house. As we read Joshua 9:23, uh, it says, Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water, for the house of my God. And Shorak says, this is a most peculiar curse, because it, as it brings near the Gibeonites to the place of God's dwelling, the location of the greatest blessing of Israel. We should never look at the Gibeonite deception as something that is commendable. Really, they tried to get in God's mercy through a side door, and we see that they were cursed for it. Even still, God turned their curse into a blessing. They became servants, but they became servants to the very house of God. God had mercy on the Gibeonites in spite of their deception. And the measure of his mercy was greater than the measure of their deception and the measure of their curse. Such is the power of God's mercy and the power of his salvation. This chapter, when you read it at first, it is pretty discouraging because it puts a spotlight on how far humanity falls from, from the being worthy to receive the blessings of God's favor. But this is also a very encouraging chapter, because it shows us how God has poured his love out on the world in spite of our sinfulness. The Gibeonites were caught trying to stow themselves away on the train of God's mercy. They deserved to suffer death for what they did. But in verse 26, the Gibeonites didn't receive what they deserved. They received mercy. We're told that Joshua delivered them out of the hand of the people. They were not killed, but they lived. And they ate of the crumbs that fell from the table of God's children Israel until the day when Jesus Christ came and broke down the dividing wall that separates all men and women from God. He has made us one in himself. And now there is no Israelite or Gibeonite because the title, offspring of Abraham, is given to all who believe. Praise be to God for his mercy. The mercy of God is great. We may only receive it, we see, through the means that God has appointed, through faith. Those who have received the mercy of God through faith in Christ are like ticket-holding passengers on the train of God's grace, traveling towards the final destination of everlasting peace in the presence of God, which brings us to our third point, the ticket holders. The price of our admission has been paid at the cost of another, and there is a great deal we can learn from this passage about how we are supposed to live in that reality. The first thing we want to see is that we are called to live with integrity, Because now that we have been brought on the train of God's mercy, we have become reflections of the glory of God and the covenant of peace that we have with Him must shine through us on the dealings that we have with others. Christians must honor their agreements for the sake of the glory of King Jesus. When the people of Israel realized that their leadership had been duped by the cleverness of the Gibeonites, they didn't exactly respond very well, did they? In verse 18, our author tells us that they, they did not attack their cities because their leaders had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, but that did not stop them from murmuring to each other about what their leaders had done. The Israelites had a reason to be upset about what had happened. The leadership had failed to go to God for wisdom, and that led to a violation of Israel's commission to go in and to destroy the Canaanites. It's, it's even more right that they should be upset at what had happened uh, if they were concerned about the warning that Moses had given if they if they allowed the Canaanites to live. They, would be, they had a right to be concerned that future generations, or even they, might be led into idolatry. Though I get the feeling that perhaps the real reason the Israelites were upset was because they are missing out on the spoils of war, since the city of Gibeon was particularly richer and greater than Ai. Now, despite the people's grumblings and griping, Joshua and the leaders did not allow the people to attack the Gibeonites. They let them live. And the reason they did that is explained to us in verse 18 that the leadership had sworn to the Gibeonites by the Lord, the God of Israel. The truthfulness and the glory of the name of the Lord was on the line here. And so while the law authorized the forces of Israel to annihilate the Gibeonites originally, once this covenant of peace had been made and secured with such an oath by the name of the Lord, there was no going back. The leaders told the people, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So these leaders made a bad decision. They relied on their own wisdom and on their own understanding. They did not consult the Lord about what they should do. But in the aftermath of their bad decision, the leaders of Israel, we see, made a wise decision to honor their agreement. They knew that the glory of the Lord was on the line here. And if they went back on their word, it would make God himself look like like a liar. And Israel would surely be punished. Now we've all made agreements that we wished later on that we could back out of. The leadership of Israel may not be a glowing example of how to make a good decision here. But we see that they are excellent examples of godly integrity. Who shall dwell in the house of the Lord? David asks in Psalm 15. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change. If the leaders of Israel had stopped and consulted the Lord before they made the covenant things may have turned out differently here. But after the covenant had been made, the name of the Lord was on the line, and the leaders had to lie in the bed that they had made. God had his own purposes for, for showing mercy to Gibeon, uh, which he secured through the leader's oversight. He honored, He himself honored this covenant with Gideon and defi- Gibeon sorry, uh, and defended them. Uh, we find that years later, King Saul tried to kill these people off. And so under the leadership of David, we see that God actually sent famine on the land until that blood guilt was paid. So God honors his word and he expects us to honor our word as well. Jesus calls each of us to keep our word because our integrity must be a reflection of his. God always keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant and he expects us to keep ours. In Matthew 5, Jesus instructs us, let what you say be simply yes or no. He says, anything more than this comes from evil. So, Christian, honor your word, even if you have spoken to your own heart, own hurt or your own loss, knowing that God sees all, and he will hold us all accountable for what we say, but he will also honor us when we honor him. Second, we see here that uh, those who receive the grace of God as those who have received the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus, we are all called to live by faith and not by sight. We sang that earlier uh, in in our third song this morning. When you read about how the leaders of Israel uh, went about this, the glaring reason that they ended up in this uncomfortable position was verse 14, they did not ask counsel from the Lord the leaders, and the men took provisions from the Gibeonites. They, they had hard evidence that corroborated their story. What they saw, what they touched, what they maybe even tasted and smelled confirmed the lie, but it didn't change the fact that the Gibeonites had deceived them, and it didn't make it any easier for, the, for them to tell the congregation that they had been duped. This story confirms what we've all experienced That not everything in this world can be known 100% through our own senses. Just because a path looks good doesn't mean it's the way we should go. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death, says Proverbs 14, verse 12. Our world is not always what it seems, and so we have to rely on more than our own understanding. We must rely first and foremost on God's revelation, on his word. God sees the truth of every matter. Relying on God's word doesn't mean that we forsake logic and reason. It means that we live by faith in the one who sees the whole picture, who is not corrupted by sin and its blindness the way we are. So the rule and authority for everything that we ought to do as believers is the word of God. It is the Bible. That's what makes it so precious and essential for living a life of meaning. Christians believe things that we cannot fully explain. We don't believe something because we can reason our way to it or quantify it or calculate it. We reason and calculate and quantify from the starting place of faith. I believe, Augustine says, in order that I may understand. God is not subject to human understanding because human understanding is not able to comprehend the infinite. We fit in the box of God's understanding. He does not fit in ours. So if we're to know true wisdom, we must begin at the place where wisdom starts, by fearing the Lord. And once we do, we'll find that we're equipped to live by faith in the faithful promises of God, no longer chained to our limited understanding. The Israelite leaders show us what lies at the end of the path of the person who forgets to consult the wisdom of the Lord. We can often take this too far and become frozen in indecision, waiting for God to confirm what He's already told us to do. But on the flip side, we should make sure that we never rush into an important decision without consulting God in prayer and by His word and by the wisdom that He gives His people. The third thing, and finally, what this passage teaches us, is that we are not to begrudge God for those to whom He shows mercy. We are not to begrudge God when he shows mercy to people we don't think are worthy of it. God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on those whom I will have compassion. Jesus gives us the example. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. And then throughout the day, this master went into the marketplace and he hired more workers at the third, sixth, and even the, at the very end of the day, at the 11th hour when the day was done. When it came time to pay the workers, Jesus tells us that the master began with those who had only worked for an hour. And in his generosity, he paid them uh, an entire day's wage. And he, and he says, now when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, just like we saw the congregation of Israel grumbling against the Israelite leaders. These only worked for an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat, they say. But the master replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So, Jesus says, the last will be first and the first last. Joshua didn't condemn the people for being upset at the unwise decision that the leaders made not to consult the Lord on this matter. But he also ensured that the Gibeonites were spared. And this was God's mercy. Mercy that he had shown Israel when he called them and rescued them and redeemed them and had mercy on them in the wilderness and then blessed them with this land of rest. The Israelites received a blessing from God, a blessing of mercy, and so did the Gibeonites. If God gave any one of us what we truly deserve, we would all receive his just punishment. We would all burn in an eternal hell away from the presence of his grace. We would be destroyed like the Canaanites. Whether God saves a beggar or a king, he is to be exalted because nothing in any one of us compels God to show love to us. The mercy of God is a free gift and that changes things. That's the reason Jesus calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to repay evil with good, because that's the way God has treated you. No one earns God's favor. He gives it freely to the praise of Jesus Christ. So let us not grumble when God shows mercy to someone who has hurt us. Instead, let us rejoice that God is able to to take even our bad decisions and he's able to work all, work, the, work all things together for our good and for the glory of our King. Let us then endure with long-suffering the shortcomings of others, the way that God endures with us. <clears throat> In the end, our reward will be great, not because of what we've done, but because of the excellence of what Christ has done. And that, poor believer, who you have seen struggle time and time again with the same sins, who has limped their entire life, they'll be made new again with you to receive the same reward of the eternal, of eternal life that Jesus has secured for us through the grace and the mercy of God. So the mercy of God never fails. It plugs on like an unstoppable train. The ingenuity of the wicked cannot stop our king. They cannot overthrow the rest and the victory he has secured by his excellent blood. Still, we see the only way to receive that mercy, to get on board this gospel train, is through the doorway of Christ. And those of us who have entered, who have had our admission paid by him, know that our place is reserved with him. And therefore, we must live as he did in the joy of the mercy of the cross. Let's pray. Father as we look at this passage we can identify with all three groups Father before you opened our eyes to the to the truth we were like the Canaanites who rushed headlong into your judgment treasuring things that are not worthy of our affection serving our own selfish desires seeking to secure an inheritance that is less than what you created us to have. Raising our hand against you and against your people. Hating the very image of God that is displayed in our fellow human beings. Father, some of us may still be at that point now, and I pray that you would convict us, that we would raise our eyes and see the mercy that you have sent our way through Christ. Some of us, Father, may be like the Gibeonites who who thought they could, by their own cunning and their own abilities, work their way into your affection, to figure out a way to leverage your mercy against you. Father, you've shown us that that fails, and that the only way we can enter the doorway of, into your grace is through the doorway of your mercy. So, Father, those of us who have seen the inability of ourselves to save ourselves, who have seen a glimpse of the heinousness of our sin and who have appealed to you for a clean conscience by, by appealing to the sacrifice of King Jesus on our behalf and received him by faith. I pray that, Father, you would give us strength to live as he lived, that your spirit would be with us to guide us and direct us, that we would be diligent to listen to your counsel and your word, to apply it to our lives until the day when you make us new in heaven with him. I pray all this, O Lord, In the precious name of King Jesus, amen.